If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Mark chapter 10. If you're using a pew Bible, it's going to be on the bottom of page 846. 846. Starting in verse 35 of Mark chapter 10. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Brothers and sisters, if someone approached you today and were to ask you this question, what would your answer include? Some of you, like myself, are probably chomping at the bit. You're just waiting for somebody to ask you a question about Jesus, right? Your response would probably be, well, how much time do you have? Well, unfortunately, I don't have that kind of time. Lord willing, though, today we will soberly consider what it means to follow Jesus according to today's passage. Following Jesus, in short, means abandoning your kingdom here on earth, suffering for the cause of Christ, and becoming a slave to all rather than a ruler. Because Jesus served and laid down his life, His followers must be willing to lay down their lives in service to him and to others. Starting in verse 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit, one of your right hand and one of your left, in your glory. Jesus said, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those who has been prepared. One of the major literary themes in chapters 8 through 10 of Mark's gospel is the lack of understanding from Jesus' disciples. 
The, the request of James and John in today's passage is simply another episode in a series displaying the disciples' ignorance. The consistent picture through these chapters is the disciples' blindness and inability to grasp what Jesus set out to accomplish. For example, just a couple chapters earlier, when Jesus foreshadows his death, Peter immediately tries to stop him. Turn to Mark chapter 8, looking at verse 31 for me. And he, being Jesus... And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In another place, we see the disciples argue about who would be the greatest among them. Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 35. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first... He must be last of all and servant of all. So we can see that Mark is definitely not highlighting the disciples' greatest hits. So we must ask ourselves, what is Mark trying to emphasize by recording these events? It is much more than just recounting incidents as they occurred. Instead, Mark highlights the two different priorities of Jesus and his disciples. We see that the disciples were constantly, constantly preoccupied with what Jesus could do for them here on earth. James and John did not open with their real question. Instead, they asked Jesus to do whatever they asked of him. Only after Jesus responds with, what do you want me to do for you? That their actual question is revealed. The brothers asked for Jesus to grant them a seat at his right and left hand in his glory. In the Jewish custom, the place of highest honor was at the center of the company, followed closely by the right and the left. According to verse 32 of chapter 10, this request took place on their way to Jerusalem. James, John, and the other disciples anticipated something big happening when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. They knew that Jesus had great authority. Otherwise, they wouldn't have made the request to him in the first place. During this time, it was common for those in power to grant powerful positions to individuals in exchange for their allegiance and absolute loyalty. They must have thought, the Messiah is here. Our nation will soon rise again. He will finally overthrow these pagan rulers and claim his seat on the Davidic throne. We better make sure that we get our places now. Despite their acknowledgement, however, their request reveals that their priorities were completely wrong. James and John wanted prominent positions here on earth, and they thought that Jesus was the man who could do it. But they did not know what they were asking. Well, how do I know this? Well, look at the text. Jesus unequivocally tells them, you do not know what you are asking. 
their request for prominence occurs right after Jesus predicted his death for the third time. Look at Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was about to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Although the disciples recognized Christ's authority, they still misunderstood what type of kingdom Jesus came to establish. Jesus asked them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? The cup was a common Jewish metaphor used regarding one's appointed destiny. In the Old Testament, the symbol of the cup sometimes referred to joy and blessings, but is more often a symbol of God's wrath and divine judgment. The latter is what is in view in today's passage. The cup that Jesus must drink refers to the divine punishment of sins he bears in place of the guilty. When Jesus here speaks of baptism, it is metaphorical. The baptism refers to being immersed in calamity and not to the sacrament of baptism itself. So considering this background, we see that when Jesus applies the metaphor of the cup and baptism to himself, he's demonstrating his willing submission to the Father's fate for him, bearing the sins of men. Once more, Jesus foreshadows his coming death on the cross while his disciples are distracted about greatness. It cannot be stressed enough that the question Jesus asked in verse 38 calls for a negative reply. But we see the disciples emphatically respond that they are able. Jesus does indicate that they will participate in his sufferings, but it will not be in the exact nature of his atoning death. As his followers and for his sake, the sons of Zebedee will endure great tribulations and suffering. For his sake and as his followers, they will endure great tribulations and suffering. Jesus adds that even if James and John were to fulfill these conditions, he could not grant the request for seats next to him in glory. One's appointment is not up to him, but God the Father. Ultimately, we can see that Jesus' response demonstrates the opposite views of greatness between him and his disciples. When they were concerned with their position of power, Jesus prophesied his death and suffering. James and John believed that following Jesus would result in powerful positions here on earth. They also didn't understand the suffering and tribulations that would come with following Jesus. Are we not susceptible to do the same? To treat Jesus as a tool to build our kingdom here on earth? Or to think that following Jesus will be easy and free of persecution? Let anyone thinks that he stands, take heed lest he falls. Looking at verse 41, 
After the Zebedee brothers' interaction with Jesus, we see from verse 31 that the other ten heard about the request and became indignant. The reaction of the ten is no more commendable than the arrogance of the two. Why? The other ten were probably angry because they wanted the positions for themselves. Seeing their reaction, Jesus decides it would be best to address all of them on the necessity of humility. Before he teaches them what true humility and greatness looks like, he tells them what it is not. Jesus reminds the disciples of their current reality under Gentile rulers. These rulers lorded their positions over their subjects and exercised strict authority. It was common for Roman rulers to glorify themselves by demanding worship from their subjects as their God. They aspired after these prominent positions above all else. Reputation, social status, wealth, honor, and power was the primary motivation. In this society, your title brought you social value. It showed others how important you were. The disciples would have known exactly what Jesus was referring to. Jesus connects this type of rule to their desire for greatness. He is illustrating the chilling, the chilling similarities between them and how unbelievers act. Ironically, in the disciples' attempt to secure a position of rank for themselves, they were actually imitating those who they undoubtedly despised. Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. Instead, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Instead of acting like unbelievers who seek greatness and dominate with an iron fist, Jesus emphatically calls his followers to servanthood. And not just like any servant, but as a slave. During this time, slaves were considered the lowest class of society. They were often subjected to degradation or even abuse. They possessed no rights other than the ones given by their master. Even freed criminals had more rights than some slaves during this time. Jesus tells his followers to be great in God's kingdom. They must become the least of these. You must be willing to deny yourself to serve others. The word servant and the slave paint a picture of an individual whose actions and attitudes are directed toward the interests of others instead of their own. Do not assert yourself to gain high positions of authority, for that is what the unbelievers do. Instead, humble yourself and seek the lower position of humble servanthood. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is interesting to note the title Jesus gives himself at the beginning of this verse, Son of Man. This title was used most prominently in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel, who was a prophet of God, was given a vision of a human with the title Son of Man. This figure was not only human, but also divine. God gave the Son of Man in this vision total dominion over the earth. 
all nations, peoples, and languages would come to serve and worship this man. It's no coincidence that Jesus applies this title here in the context of greatness and servanthood. Jesus voluntarily deferred his glory as the Son of Man and assumed the form of a slave. The one that deserves to be served came to serve. It is the ultimate reversal of man's concept of greatness and rank. In their time with Jesus, the disciples witnessed many ways in which Jesus served others, casting out demons, feeding the 4,000, healing the sick. The disciples probably had this type of service in mind. And on one level, they would be correct. Serve in the same spirit that you were witnessed me serve you and others. Now, we should stop here if we want a simple moral message about servanthood. I can end by suggesting simple, vague admonitions to serve. We can all go home comfortably, trying our best to be better servants. But in doing so, we would leave the most essential phrase in today's passage. This phrase is what separates Christianity from all other worldviews. Jesus claims that the Son of Man will give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man would give his life as a ransom. At this point, the disciples are probably nodding in agreement. Yeah, okay, we need to serve more. Okay, I get it. I get it. Yeah. Hold on. Did you just say you're going to give your life a ransom? A ransom for who? A ransom for what? Mind you, like we just covered, this was not the first or the last time that Jesus would tell his disciples about his death. But it is the first time that Jesus refers to his death as a ransom. Ransom was a familiar image in Jewish, Roman, and Greek cultures. It was the price paid to liberate a slave, a prisoner of war, or even a condemned person. The pain of the price cleaned the slate between the two parties. Setting a person free in this way was known as redemption. Throughout the Bible, especially in the Levitical law, we learn that there must always be a payment or restitution for any redemption to occur. The author of Hebrews tells us plainly that without blood, there can be no forgiveness. Without blood, there can be no forgiveness. When applying the ransom metaphor to himself, Jesus is defining the extent of his service and the purpose of his death. His death on the cross would redeem Israel from their spiritual slavery. Now, this was a different type of salvation than what Israel was expecting at the time. National Israel was eagerly waiting a messianic king to liberate them from political and social oppression, not a spiritual one. They thought the Messiah would be a figure of great military strength and political power. In essence, they were expecting a Messiah that would come to establish his kingdom here on earth. No doubt Jesus' disciples had the exact expectations. It was implied in their initial request. But in this verse, Jesus has in mind something much bigger than liberation from worldly oppression. 
The idea of ransom is reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 53. In this chapter, Isaiah prophesied a suffering servant that God punishes. The suffering servant's life becomes an offering for the sins of others. Jesus, as the messianic servant, offers himself as the guilt offering. In compensation for the sins of the people. The release of this offering overcomes man's alienation from God, his subjection to death, and his bondage to sin. Jesus, the Son of Man, innocently and willingly takes the place of many. The cup of God's righteous judgment will be poured out on him instead of those who deserved it. The idea that the Messianic King, the Son of Man, would submit himself to the point of death on behalf of others would have been scandalous, absolutely scandalous, especially considering the culture that they were in. They were in a culture saturated with power and dominance. Jesus' obedience to death on a Roman cross would have been the ultimate cultural humiliation. Whom the ransom is for is not the point of the image, but instead its purpose is to make clear that Jesus Christ, Son of God and man, was himself the price paid to set man free. He did not come to liberate his followers from earthly oppression, but spiritual oppression. He came to liberate humanity from something that he himself could not free from. The slavery of sin and death. The dividing line between Christianity and other worldviews is the biblical truth of original sin, man's incapacity to cure himself, and his great need for a savior. You won't find this truth in self-help books or other worldviews. The painful, the painful and glorious destiny of the Son of Man is something unique to Jesus. It is, in a definite sense, unrepeatable. He alone is the ransom for many, not his followers. Nevertheless, in deferring his position of glory to submissive servanthood, Jesus demonstrates how his disciples are to live. His self-sacrificial death on the cross is the radical change that can compel self-sacrificial service. So what do we do with this information? How does this apply to us? First, Following Jesus means abandoning any ambition to establish an earthly kingdom. Although James and John are the ones cited in this passage to this request, it could have easily been the other 10. Although this event happened over 2,000 years ago, we still see followers of Jesus using them as a power broker or a genie to establish their earthly kingdom. Our unchecked sinfulness can cause us to establish a kingdom here on earth rather than investing into the kingdom of God. James and John knew that Jesus had the power to fulfill whatever they asked. But again, their failure was focusing on an earthly kingdom. Today, we can all agree that there is power in the name of Jesus. Amen? But what do you ask for in your prayer life? Is it for God's kingdom to come? 
Or is it to make your life here more comfortable? Although it's not wrong to ask God for creature comforts, if most of what we pray for is focused on an earthly kingdom, then that reveals what our heart prioritizes. Humbly ask you to ask and plead with God to help you destroy your earthly idols and replace them with a vision for his kingdom. Point number two, following Jesus means dying to yourself for the cause of Christ. When someone asks you, what does it mean to follow Jesus? How often do you include dying to yourself? I say this simply to highlight how unpopular the idea is, especially in today's culture. There must be solidarity between the Son of Man and his disciples. If we, Christians, are willing to accept his sacrifice and his protection, then we must also be willing to die to ourselves. But what would motivate anybody, anybody, to die to themselves for the sake of Christ? What would be the motivation for that? The greatest incentive, the greatest motivation is for Christ's name. He asks us to deny ourselves for his own sake. He asks no more than he himself gave. We do not follow just for what we can give or get, but supremely because of what he gave himself. He gave himself. What we give up here to follow him, he gave up infinitely more. He left the Father's glory, the security of heaven, the worship of countless angels. He humbled himself to be born in a manger and made friends with sinners and tax collectors. He died on a criminal's cross to bear the sins of the world as a ransom. It is only as we behold the cross that we are willing to forsake our ambition for earthly greatness, to deny ourselves and to humble ourselves to service. When we understand the love that he had by suffering such shame and pain for the judgment that we deserve, how could a Christian ever justify living a life of selfishness if their Lord died to serve. Christian, your life is not your own. You were bought with the price. Even your time here on earth is not even your own. You're living on borrowed time. How are you spending it? Are you wasting it by indulging the flesh, spending hours on social media, Or are you using your borrowed time here to know Christ and to make him known? Remember, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul?
Last point. Following Jesus means your life is characterized as a slave to all instead of a ruler. There's a great temptation for Christians to assert their their authority like the world does. But this shall not be so among you. Those who readily accept Jesus' ransom ought to also accept his call to servanthood. Jesus has all authority under heaven and earth. All things are made by him and for him. The nations are his inheritance. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He is the lamb that is worthy to be praised and adored. This this is the same powerful figure that was led like a lamb to its slaughter. He carried our sorrows and was smitten and afflicted by God, pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. That's the same man. The greatest injustice in the world was at the cross. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Jesus, the Son of Man, laid down his authority to serve. He has every reason, every reason not to serve us, yet he did. And if we're being honest, if we're being dead honest, he shouldn't have. He shouldn't have served us. So it is much more than applying pressure to our wills to serve more. This type of love is what radically transforms the naturally self-seeking and naturally self-promoting heart to servanthood. What a miracle. Praise the Lord. What a miracle. What kind of love is this? Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies a parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man ascribed by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The love of God is greater still. This type of self-sacrificing life is what should characterize his followers. Jesus has ultimate authority, yet he humbled himself to serve through his life and his death, he counted the needs of others more important. The next time your heart tries to justify your selfishness, like, that is not my job. I shouldn't have to do that. He or she doesn't do anything around the house anyways. Why do I need to do that? Remind yourself, I did not deserve Jesus, the almighty king of heaven and earth, to humble himself and offer his life for me, a sinner. Being a servant is much deeper than our actions. It is also our attitude towards others. How do you view others? Are they a means to an end? Or do you humble yourself to serve them? Because Jesus not only died for you, but he died for them as well. 
I'll confess that sometimes when my wife and I are talking, she can tell. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a spouse thing. I don't know. She can tell when I'm not listening to her. She can tell when I'm just waiting for her to stop talking so I can say what I want to say. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. But in that moment, I'm not seeking to serve my beautiful wife. I'm seeking affirmation. I'm seeking to serve myself. To those who are already faithfully serving and may feel burnt out, know know that your service points to your king. In those moments that you deny yourself and serve, you are displaying to those who may never read the Bible, may never go to church, what Jesus is like. Primarily, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Take heart that you are showing others the same self-sacrificing love that you experienced in Christ. In addition, remember that your service that no one else may see is seen by your King. In those moments when nobody is thanking you, know that your King sees He sees in secret, and he will reward you in secret. Lastly, we can see that following Jesus means surrendering your life to him. The death of Jesus is more than an example to serve. If this were the case, then the phrase, gave his life as a ransom for many, would not make any sense. There is no redemption. There is no redemption in an example no pardon in a pattern. Man does not need another great teacher to tell us how to live. What man needs is a radical change in nature, a change from self to unself. We cannot do this ourselves more than an Ethiopian can change his skin or leopard its spots. Neither are you able to do good, you who are accustomed to evil. Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 23. If only someone could transform our spirit of self-assertion with the spirit of self-sacrifice. For the characteristic of sin is centered on us and what we can get. But the characteristic of love is what we can give. Man alone is incapable of generating this type of change in himself. Again, We need a Savior. For apart from Christ, those of you who are sitting here, apart from Christ, soberly and humbly tell you this, you are dead in your sins. Talking about sin in this way only shows our tremendous need for a Savior. It helps us to understand and accept what he offers. He offers forgiveness. He offers pardon. We cannot put our trust in Christ until we have lost all hope in ourselves. Only when we deeply examine our disease will we begin to look for the cure. If you want a life of easygoing self-indulgence, then whatever you do, don't become a Christian. 
But if you want forgiveness for your sins, if you want reconciliation with your heavenly father, if you want to be an object of his love, if you want the privilege of serving the king of kings and other people, turn from your sins. I beg you, turn from your sins and yield your life to God. Follow the risen Savior and the lover of your soul, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example that your Son and our Lord has shown through it. Father, We confess that we have elevated our desires and our plans over your will for our lives and for your kingdom. We want authority and power over others to use it for our own purposes. Forgive us for our half-hearted devotion and our double-minded attention to your way. Remind us that you desire servants first and foremost. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would strengthen those that are faithfully serving amongst us with the knowledge that we are reflecting our Lord. Enable us to serve in the name of Jesus, the one who came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It is in his name we pray. Amen.